all set. All right. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get started. Let's pray. Father, you are good. You are great. You are great to us. Um, and we praise you. We worship you with our lives. And we thank you. We thank you for bringing us here. We thank you for allowing us to receive your word. And as we open up this study, we, we ask that you would grow us in our knowledge of, of your word and specifically our knowledge of the roles of men and women in your church. We also pray for um, our service today, that, that it would be glorifying to you, that, that, we would have, that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word in our service today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week, as we continue our study on complementarianism, we're going to be going through the next two chapters of DeYoung's book, Men and Women in the Church. These chapters cover an Old Testament survey and the survey, uh, or a survey, of the gospel accounts, specifically looking at teachings or principles we can take in these sections of Scripture regarding the role of men and women in Scripture. And we're still in the the foundation-laying phase um, of the study where DeYoung is laying the groundwork or the foundation of, of the whole Bible's principles regarding men and women before we dive into specific commands or, or command texts for us in the New Testament for men and women. So to this end, DeYoung gives um, a very helpful mini hermeneutics lesson or, or uh, how to interpret the biblical text lesson at the beginning of chapter 2 that I want to spend some time thinking about. So I think this is very important to how we interpret and apply the Bible to our lives, not just on this topic of complementarianism, but on, on every issue. So DeYoung gives three Ps, three Ps, or three words that start with the letter P, that help distinguish types of biblical texts that will help our interpretation and, and the, the application of these texts to our lives. And those P's are, are prescriptions, principles, and patterns. Prescriptions, principles, and patterns. So first, prescriptions are those texts that prescribe something or, or command something. These are the, the clearest texts to interpret and apply, DeYoung argues, and these, you, these are easily characterized as the do's and don'ts in Scripture. So later in this study, actually starting next week, we're going to examine several, several prescriptive texts regarding men and women and their roles. And these are mainly found in uh, the Apostle Paul's epistles in the New Testament, but also elsewhere. And these texts, given that they are commands, are pretty explicit in what they demand of us, especially in the discussion on the role of men and women. 
And because of this, de Jong argues, they form the, the clearest boundaries for us, the clearest boundaries for male and female dress, um, behavior, attitudes, responsibilities. And so those are prescriptive texts, prescriptions. Next are principles. And de Jong argues that principles are just as important as prescriptions. They're just less immediate. And I think what de Jong means by this is that the applications of the principle is less direct to the reader to us than a command and a prescription. But just because they aren't as direct or, or immediate doesn't mean they are less important. These are, these are principles, are fundamental truths about what men and women are like and what they are created to be. Young argues that we can find principles um, all throughout Scripture, from Genesis to, to Revelation. The last P that De Young talks about is what he calls patterns. Patterns. Patterns are patterns of behavior for men and women and their interaction with each other. So this is sometimes also considered under the idea of a description. A, a, a description. This is most often found in narrative of narrative accounts, uh, Old Testament, Old Testament narratives. The authors are telling or writing a historical account of an event and aren't necessarily intending a prescriptive meaning or even developing a principle from the individual story. So as DeYoung points out, we need to be very careful in prescribing something or gleaning a principle from a text that, that isn't intended by the author. This is the root, I think, of so many theological errors when folks take stories that are describing an event and then prescribe that to us in our current context. That is a, a danger. But DeYoung argues that the more often we see something in the Bible, we see, we see patterns in the Bible, especially across the, the genres of the canon, then we can derive a principle from that pattern. So if we see the same patterns over and over again, over a diversity of literature in the scriptures, then we can be more confident in deriving a principle from the text. So regarding the, the roles of men and women, this is especially true if the, if the pattern is consistent with and reflects the created design, the created order that we saw last week in Genesis. So those are, are the three P's of interpretation that are, are very important as we look to the biblical data regarding men and women and their role distinctions. Now as we look at this chapter in particular, chapter 2, De Young's synthesis of the Old Testament data, or at least what he includes in, in his book, we need to know that we are dealing with, or what we're dealing with, are mainly patterns, the, the last P that he gave. So the Old T Testament doesn't intend to give us explicit instructions about men and women and their role in the church. Yet that doesn't mean we just we just throw away the Old Testament in this study. As DeYoung writes, the Old Testament does show us a lot 
about men and women in general. And these patterns ought to shape how we think of sexual differentiation and complementarity in life and ministry. The Old Testament patterns on men and women should shape, should inform how we think about these issues. So Dion gives five patterns in this chapter that he sees in the Old Testament that we're going to examine. But any questions and comments on the three Ps, interpretation, anything? It is helpful. Yes, I, I agree. Also, I have a little less material than typical, so we can have more comments and questions. But don't go too, too crazy. <laughs> All right, so let's go to pattern number one. Pattern number one from DeYoung is that only men, and remember this is Old Testament patterns, only men exercise official leadership. Only men exercise official leadership. DeYoung's main argument for this section is that from the start to finish in the Old Testament, only men were official leaders of God's people. We see this from the beginning in, in the patriarchs of Genesis. God called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be the leader or head of their families, which this family would one day become the, the nation of Israel. DeYoung makes the argument that the Old Testament doesn't emphasize the father's rule over his family as much as it underscores the role the father fulfilled as the provider and protector of his family, of his house. This, I think, should be expected if we look at the role and task that Adam was given in the created order in Genesis 1-3. through 3. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are often referred to as the patriarchs because they're the leaders or the, or the heads of their families, of, the fa of their family that God chose out of the world to, to become a people for himself. But notice, again, that, that God chose men to be the, the leader, the recognized leaders in Genesis. After the patriarchs, we have the, the historical accounts of the exodus and the conquest into the promised land. Also here, all the leaders of the new nation the, the, in that time period, the new nation of Israel were men. Moses, Aaron, Joshua... As Israel developed their worship and polity as a nation chosen by God, all the leaders under Moses were, were all men. The priests and the Levites who led the worship of the Old Covenant community were all men. Fast forwarding a little bit, all of the judges except one were men, and we're going to talk about that exception in a moment. In the time of the kings, again, every single one was, was a man except one. Um, and all of the most significant public prophets and all of the writing prophets that we, that we have in Scripture, think of uh, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all men. So DeYoung's point, or the key statement for this pattern, is that all those who rightfully occupied a governing office in Israel were men. All those who rightfully occupied a governing office in Israel were men. Okay, so what about the exceptions to this pattern? 
Probably the most notable exception to this pattern is Deborah. Deborah, we see Deborah in the book of Judges. She, most notably, right with the story with uh, Barak. She was Israel's fourth judge in this historical period. DeYoung points out that Deborah never exercised a military function, but she came alongside Barak when he failed to go into battle, when, when he failed to go into battle in Judges 4. But the text is, is pretty clear, and I think this is important for this discussion, that it would, to, it would have been to Barak's shame that his enemy would have been, that, that his enemy would have to be killed by a woman. Nevertheless, Deborah is reckoned as a judge and a prophetess of Israel. And it's important to remember that at this point in Israel's history, the judges were given to Israel as national deliverers. The, the judges would bring Israel out of successive crises situation because of, because of the nation's own disobedience and their, their apostasy to the Lord. So in this way, we can see that the judges were not formal officers or you could say institutional leaders with, with a constituted authority. All that to say, I don't think it would be wise to take the example of Deborah being a judge as a paradigm to, as some would argue, to, to be the paradigm to have women in the leadership of the New Testament community, the, the church, just because she was a type of leader in the Old Testament. I don't think that the evidence is there to make that, that type of leap. This is, again, an exception and not the rule. The next exception to this pattern is that DeYoung points out is that, that some women prophesied in the Old Testament and, and are referred to as prophetesses. The prophecies were, were definitely true. God spoke through these women and they should be celebrated. But we, as DeYoung points out, we need to recognize that these women never held any institutional power or authority and they did not have the same role as their, their male prophet counterparts. Namely, they didn't have the same kind of public ministry to national Israel as the male prophets. Another common claim or exception to this pattern that only men exercise official leadership is the Old Testament story of Esther. So Esther was no doubt a brave and heroic queen who God used in a mighty way in redemptive history but she was not the ruling monarch over God's people, ever. And she never, she never served over Israel. She was the queen of a, a pagan nation, not God's people. So it would be improper and inaccurate to say that she was a ruling monarch over God's people. And that's since she really isn't an exception to de Young's pattern here. But there was one woman who sat on the throne of Israel. Very interesting story. And this can be found in 2 Kings 11. Athaliah, that's her name, Athaliah. Not many girls named after this lady. And for good reason. She's not a good character in the story. In fact, she was pretty wicked. She was, she was evil. The only way she took the throne of Israel was by killing all the royal heirs to the throne. 
So she wasn't even a rightful heir to the throne of Israel and took the throne not with God's anointing, but in complete rebellion to God. It's not really a great example to cite for female leadership, but there's many egalitarians that do, amazingly. And when the rightful heir, Joash, is revealed later in the chapter, Athaliah is taken off the throne and then put to death. So de Young writes of this event well. He says, Athaliah's reign, far from being a notable exception to the rule, underscores the Old Testament notion that it was a sign of declension and embarrassment for women to rule over God's people. And then he cites Isaiah 3.12 as, as, as a verse. So pattern one, only men exercised official leadership in the Old Testament. Questions, comments? Okay. Pattern two. Oh, they do do that. Which I'm gonna, I'm gonna get to that argument when we get to Jesus. But I think my argument then would still apply to the to the Old Testament. All right. Pattern number two. Pattern number two is that godly women displayed a wide range of heroic characteristics. Godly women displayed a wide range of heroic characteristics in the Old Testament. So, just because women didn't exercise official leadership roles in the Old Testament does not mean they were unimportant in the Old Testament storyline, or that women didn't display a wide array of praiseworthy, heroic characteristics. They did, all over the Old Testament narrative. De Young states that we should not equate male leadership with female passivity. That's not an accurate depiction to the, to the story and text and scripture. Women play an integral role in the unfolding of salvation history. And De Young doesn't give an exhaustive list of some of these women, but it's, it's good to just look at a few of these just to recognize the, the, this pattern in scripture. So De Young points out the daughters of, this is a tough name, the, da- the daughters of Zelophehad in Numbers 27. If you just say it with confidence, that's what I was taught in seminary. Zelophehad in Numbers 27. So this is an interesting story. Zelophehad had no sons to inherit his land, and traditionally the daughters would not inherit this land in Israel. The land would go to his nearest male relative, while his daughters, he would he would give away in marriage. Well, these, these daughters go to Moses and they say, why should our father's name be taken away from his land because he had no son? The land can come to us so his name may go on. So the legacy of his name may go on. And so Moses, the text says, brought the case before the Lord. And the Lord says, the daughters are right. And daughters in Israel can possess the land of their father if he has no son. The daughters see that they acted heroically as they sought to honor the legacy of their father's name. And they acted with a type of boldness to even approach Moses regarding this situation of cultural custom. Another account, one of my favorites in the Old Testament of a heroic woman acting in a sort of unexpected way, is the story of Yael in Judges 4 and 5. 
Yael was a lady. She took a hammer and a stake, and she drove the stake through the temple of the, of the wicked man Sisera while, as he was sleeping in his tent. So she killed the wicked man, destroyed the wicked man for God's glory. It's, it's, it's attributed to her as a virtue in the storyline of Scripture. Yeah. Which you could make the connection, the seed of the serpent, yes. crushing the head of the serpent. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think that is a, a good connection. And thank you. Um, so there's more accounts than these two um, patterns, like the, the Proverbs 31 woman, which is a glorious picture of, of a woman of wisdom being described as resourceful and clothed and, and strength and dignity as she gives herself to the service of her, of her household, of, to her family. The point of the pattern that DeYoung is highlighting is that women in the Old Testament sometimes acted and I'd say unexpected or, or heroic ways. And so another way to say this again, which I think is really important, is that women not exercising official leadership roles does not mean women were passive in the story necessarily. There are patterns that women were bold, resourceful, courageous in the storyline of the Old Testament. Pattern number three. Again, you can just stop me if you've got to say something. Pattern number three, godly women help men. Godly women help men in the Old Testament. DeYoung makes the point that the, the most famous women in the Old Testament are also the most exemplary in their character. Rachel, Leah, Rahab, Ruth, Eve, Deborah, Esther. They obvi obviously were not perfect, I'm not saying that, and sometimes uh, some of these women failed badly, but the text often indicates that their exemplary behavior or attitudes were directly tied to their good influence they exercised in advising, insisting, and helping men. DeYoung notes several examples of such. So first we know from the New Testament text of 1 Peter that, that Sarah was a model of submission and respect to her husband, Abraham, um, Rahab helped two Israelite male spies hide in Jericho. Deborah strengthened the resolve of Barak, right, in the story we already talked about in Judges. Esther risked her life and intervened to direct her husband to the, to the true threat to his kingdom, which wasn't the Jews, and so on and so forth. These are just patterns we can see in the Old Testament. And notice, this is, it's not only some of these women who are, who are wives helping their husband, but, but women helping men in general as in viewed as virtuous, as noble. But all of them acted in a God-glorifying way as they acted like the intelligent helpers that God had designed them to be from the beginning. Pattern four. Pattern four. Ungodly women, ungodly women influenced men for evil, and ungodly men mistreated women. So, ungodly women influenced men for evil, and ungodly men 
mistreated women in the Old Testament. So the opposite of pattern three that we just saw is the first half of this pattern. Women who are viewed as wicked and evil in the Old Testament are those that don't help men but influence men for evil. Many of these women deceived, disrespected, or, or misled their husbands. DeYoung cites the examples of Jezebel leading Ahab into greater sin, into greater iniquity in 1 Kings 21. De- Delilah deceiving Samson in Judges 16. Or Michael rebuking David for, for David's worship of the Lord, for his exuberant worship of the Lord. And DeYoung points out that there are women in the Old Testament who sin against the Lord and they do make a name for themselves apart from men, but those are, are rare uh, exceptions to the pattern. He argues most of the positive and negative examples of women in the Old Testament are positive and negative based on how they influenced men for good and evil. Also, DeYoung points out that, that some women's names are notable in the Old Testament for the unfortunate reason of being mistreated or abused by men. You could even say oppressed by men. He cites the tragic stories of Dinah in Genesis 24 and Tamar in Genesis 38 and and Lot's daughter who was offered to the men of Sodom in Genesis and the particularly horrific story of the Levites concubine in Judges 19. And I won't go into the detail of these stories, but they are truly horrific and tragic if, when you read them. And they all involve men who abuse, malign, or, or mistreat women. And DeYoung points out that the text always indicates this behavior as sin and an a abdication of their fundamental role of protecting women as men. And really this pattern... It's just an outworking of the results of the curse on sin in Genesis 3 that we talked about last week. The complementary relationship between man and woman is fundamentally fractured as women undermine men's leadership and men abuse their leadership to to oppress. DeYoung writes, concluding this section, he says, in our fallen world, should be helpers become hindrances, and even worse, should be protectors become oppressors. So, in our fallen world, should be helpers can become hindrances, and even worse, should be protectors can become oppressors. Any comments, questions? Pattern four, pattern three, and four? Pattern five, the last pattern of this chapter. Women find pain and purpose associated with bearing and caring for children. Women find pain and purpose associated with bearing and caring for children in the Old Testament. So remember again last week for a moment. Last week we saw that the the woman, Eve, was a, a helper fit or a helper suitable for Adam fundamentally because she helped him fulfill the mandate to be fruitful 
and multiply. What the man couldn't accomplish by himself or with another man, right? Fill the earth with image bearers. He, he needed the woman. And we saw that the curse of sin by God primarily affects women in that area of responsibility as her role as mother. And DeYoung makes a point then that it should be no surprise to us that in the rest of the Old Testament story that we encounter that we encounter story after story of of women finding pain and purpose and and birthing and raising children. So recall all the accounts of of barren women that the Lord then opens their womb. DeYoung points out that many of these accounts occur at turning points in redemptive history. There are also accounts in the Old Testament of God closing wombs of women. That God closing wombs of women as a punishment for disobedience to the Lord. So women find pain and joy in the ability or lack thereof to having children. It's a, it's a clear pattern across the Old Testament. And DeYoung argues it is clear that a woman's worth is not tied to the children she has or the ability for her to have children but that there's a unique God-given purpose throughout the Old Testament that women find in bearing and caring for God's children. So their worth is not find it, found in having children. That, that, that Their worth, their dignity, as we saw last week, is found in them being made in the image of God fundamentally. But they do find a purpose throughout the Old Testament in bearing and caring for children as a general pattern, which makes sense, again, given the created order and the special role the woman has in creation. All right, so these are de Young's patterns of the Old Testament, chapter 2, regarding men and women. Any questions regarding these patterns? Exactly. That their innate to their value or dignity is them being able to bear children. Yeah. Dennis said... Um, he liked the last one because there's a danger of um, creating a principle that women find their value or dignity alone and being able to bear children, which would, which is not true, right? It's found in the image of God. Just a reaffirmation of that point. Yes, as a principle, there are times that that happens where God does punish disobedience by closing the womb, but that's not necessarily true today, for sure. That is an important distinction. Well, and also, what, what, what do we use the pattern for, is, I think would be an important distinction. It's, these are, we're, again, I, making a foundation for general patterns of men and women in the Old Testament story or in Old Testament scripture that is going to inform then how we interpret New Testament texts. Um, So it's not necessarily trying to answer all the questions, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, that's the big challenge. Um, That's a really good question. Um, I can't, 
I can't think of an example off my head, but I can say that is what Paul does. So Paul takes, he goes to, the, to these patterns, and then that is where he grounds his prescriptions. Or he goes to the created order, and he, that's where he grounds his prescriptions. Do you have anything on this, Blake, to help me out here? <laughs> no, sweet. Let's go to the New Testament. <laughs> All right, let's go to the, the New Testament chapter, or, or really chapter 3 of Young's book, which is quite short. And really the thesis for this chapter um, on Jesus' treatment of women is that Jesus in his ministry and teaching counterculturally valued women and Jesus affirmed distinct roles and responsibilities for men and women. So the thesis, Jesus' treatment of women in his ministry and teaching counterculturally valued women and he also affirmed distinct roles and responsibilities for men and women. So in this section, I'm also going to be relying heavily with De Young's book, another text um, by a man, James Borland. He's pastor, professor, formerly taught at Liberty University. He was a founding member of the CBMW, which is the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Um, but it, it's clear from just a novice study of history that the historical time and context in which Jesus entered was a place that, that minimized the dignity of women and most often treated them as second-class citizens to men. So, in this way, Jesus' treatment of women are, was completely countercultural for his day. De Young would go as far as to say, as, as many other scholars as well, as saying Jesus' treatment of women was revolutionary. And Borland, in his text, gives three ways in which Jesus shows his his value of women. So first we see in the Gospels that Jesus demonstrated the high value he placed on women by recognizing their intrinsic value as persons, as humans made in God's image. The biggest evidence for this that Borland gives is how Jesus, the way in which and, and how Jesus directly talked to women during his ministry. You know, over the past couple of weeks, Blake has taught through one of the most famous accounts of these stories, Jesus' dialogue with the Samaritan woman. And remember, in that story, the shock of the disciples had that Jesus was talking to a woman alone in public because it was, it was not a custom of the culture. There, there are several other accounts throughout the Gospels of Jesus' life talking with women. We can also see in these accounts that Jesus never demeaned women or devalued them in a way and the way he spoke to them, he addressed the woman with a bleeding disorder as, as daughter. And he, he often called Jewish women daughters of Abraham, which is an important theological term because it denotes an equal spiritual status to that of men. Jesus viewed women as intrinsically valuable. But Jesus didn't just act tenderly toward women in his ministry. He also held them accountable for their sin, which is another way to affirm their dignity. 
Again, the Samaritan woman is a great example of this. Jesus held women personally responsible for their wickedness and confronted their sin. We sometimes, get, I think, modern ideas gets, gets this concept completely wrong in our culture. It undermines people's dignity and worth as image bearers when we hold them to different standards than we hold to the rest of humanity. So Jesus held women to the, to the same standard of righteousness and accountability as men, which, again, shows how he values them as persons made in the image of God. Also, DeYoung argues that, that Jesus' teaching on lust in the Sermon on the Mount fundamentally protected women from being viewed as, as just objects of desire for men. The second way Borland argues that Jesus demonstrated his high value for women was that Jesus ministered to women. And Jesus served women both physically and spiritually. There, there are really numerous accounts of, of Jesus' healing, serving, and teaching women in, in all of the Gospels, in all four. And again, it's honestly quite shocking if you remember the cultural context in which he was ministering. Jesus was, was definitely pushing on man-made, culturally conditioned uh, gender categories or, or gender discrimination that was wrong. The Samaritan woman is a great example of how Je- Jesus ministered and met her, her spiritual needs, not just physical. And it's clear that, that throughout the Gospels, Jesus healed women. He, he dialogued with women and showed women the same care and concern he showed to men. He, he ministered to women, thus again highlighting the equality between men and women. The third way... Borland argues that Jesus demonstrated a high value for women was by showing them dignity in his ministry, which is really just a summary of the first two. And what Borland means by this, again, related to the other arguments, but what he means by this is that Jesus taught women theological truths and had women participate in his life and ministry in meaningful ways. Jesus teaching women was... Very unusual for his day. Um, women typically were not encouraged and sometimes not allowed to sit in on, on, on teaching, on theological teaching, we could say. But Jesus did. The most famous example of this, to, to highlight this truth, is the story of Mary and Martha in Luke 10. Um, Jesus clearly allows and wants Mary to learn from his teaching. And Jesus says, this is, this is good. So I think one principle we can apply from that text is that it's good for women to learn and apply the word of God to their lives. This is a good thing. There, there's no role distinction then from learning from Christ. And this is a good time just to pause and just say there really is no fundamental disagreement here, I don't think, between complementarians and egalitarians. Of course, the exact argumentation will be different, and egalitarians are going to make prescriptions out of these truths about Jesus' treatment of women that complementarians would reject. But really, both sides agree here that Jesus showed countercultural worth 
and, and affirm the dignity of women. And that's going to be crucial. That's going to be crucial to the argument against egalitarians, as we will see in a moment. But it's good just to note that. The last way Jesus shows dignity towards women is that he involves, involves them in his life and ministry. So remember the accounts, Jesus allowed women to anoint him with oil, to, to serve him in that way. He, women gave to his ministry financially. They contributed in real ways to Jesus' ministry, and their labor was considered important. And their names are recorded in Scripture, which is really, it's not a small thing that there's women's names recorded in the Gospels. And it's important to remember that Jesus' honorable treatment of women is actually a part of God's original design and creation for the man to be the protector or the, or the, the leader of the woman. Jesus shows, is, is the, the example of how this is done. So I'm going to stop here just because I think the evidence is, is a slam dunk. It's very clear that Jesus valued women in a, in a pretty remarkable way, a revolutionary way, if you like that language, in his life and ministry. Any questions, comments? Now, what is very important in our study and what we can't miss is that Jesus' value of women and his equal treatment of them stops short of affording women equal roles in his life and ministry. So the second part of De Young's thesis is that Christ Jesus demonstrated a clear role distinction between men and women. And this is seen most obviously in that Jesus selected only men for the role of apostle, for the office of apostle. Now, many biblical feminists and egalitarians will argue that the only reason Jesus didn't select women to be apostles were because of temporary cultural restrictions. So some of these scholars make the argument that it was because of the, the massive dangers in travel that, that women would face without modern technology that Jesus didn't pick women to travel with him as his disciples, as his apostles. Thus, his, notice the, the, the claim of their argument. His selection was totally for cultural reasons, not in any, not any theological reason, or not because Jesus viewed the office and role of apostle for men only. Other egalitarians say that Jesus only picked men to appease the male-dominated social structure of the time, to not <laughs> rock the boat, so to speak. Now, I just want to think about this claim, because like I mentioned before, e egalitarians love to claim, as complementarians also affirm, that Jesus treated women in revolutionary, countercultural ways. That was the, the whole point of this, this first section of the chapter, the point here is that Jesus was never averse to breaking social customs when he felt it was necessary. De Young says this well. He says, it won't do to argue that Jesus was simply going along with the customs of the day. The argument just doesn't work. A few sermons ago, Blake made this point really well. You should listen to it if you didn't 
if you didn't hear it, that this argument by egalitarians is dead on arrival because not only did Jesus break cultural customs and his dealings with women throughout his life and ministry, he also broke customs in a lot of other areas of his life. He hung out with, with tax collectors. He criticized the Pharisees to their faces in public. He healed on the Sabbath. He, he flipped tables over in the temple. All of these actions were, were fundamentally opposed to the custom of the day. Jesus wasn't beholden to honor the cultural customs of the day, and he didn't often. When moral issues were at stake, Jesus did not bend to cultural pressures, ever. So I think we must strongly reject this popular argument today that it was just a cultural custom that Jesus only picked male apostles. Do you see how that that argument just doesn't work? It just does not hold up? Another objection from egalitarians, and I think this one is clever, but not good, is that Jesus only selected Jewish apostles. So the argument goes something like this. Jesus only selected Jewish men to be apostles. So if Jesus selecting men is paradigmatic to our current context, then so must him picking Jews. So they think they're, again, they think they're being clever and and arguing only Jewish men then should take on official leadership in the church. I think this argument is bad. I can see the underlying logic to it. The main issue is the argument fails to account for the moment in salvation history that Jesus was ministering. Salvation, the, the gospel, first came to the Jews, and once Jesus died, rose again, ascended into heaven, sent the Spirit to indwell his people, is when the gospel went forth to the Gentiles. So another way to think of this is that after Pentecost and Acts, the kingdom Jesus ushered in was no longer for Jews alone, but for all people. And Gentiles such as Luke and Titus, who were Gentiles and men, took leadership positions in the early church. De Young writes here that the first leaders of the church were Jews because the Christian community grew out of Judaism. As the, as the community grew to include Gentiles, so did the nucleus of leadership. Male leadership, on the other hand, was important from the beginning and remained consistent. So it's clear to me that this argument just, just isn't very good. It doesn't take into account the biblical data. The Jewishness of the apostles is linked to a particular moment in salvation history, while their maleness was not. That's how you beat that argument. Okay. Also, no? Okay. Well, let's finish, and then you can talk to me after. Also, it's worth pointing out that the church was always male and female. Meaning from its inception, the church has had male and female members, and still male leadership was continued in the church by those whom Christ initially taught and whom he committed to the future leadership of his church, the apostles. In other words, all the evidence we have from Scripture in history attests to the fact that the apostles instituted male-only eldership or, or leadership 
in the church. I think this is very informative as we think about these issues. Now, before we we end, it would also be helpful to think about why then did Jesus only pick men? If it wasn't for cultural reasons, why did he pick only men to be apostles? Borland, in, in his text, argues that apostleship always involved leadership, rulership, and reception of special revelation. So the apostles were the the obvious official leaders in the early church, and they had a unique special rulership in the church. None of these roles or functions described of the apostles were ever performed by the women who followed Christ and ministered to him. They had different roles even though Jesus treated them with equal value and dignity. The men Christ selected as the apostles had inherent leadership positions, which is why they had to be men, because this is in the created design. Think back to women in the life and ministry of Jesus. They they served him. They they fellowshiped with him. They accompanied him. They learned from him. They they prayed with him. They witnessed his resurrection, but no woman in Christ's ministry was called, commissioned, or named an apostle, or even performed in the role of an apostle. So because the role of apostle had a fundamental element of leadership and rulership in the church, which was only reserved for males, which again, this should be expected from the rest of the biblical text, And if we're following how God created the man and the woman in the creation narrative and following, again, the patterns of the Old Testament, this is not, I don't think it should be shocking to us if we're taking the the, the Bible on the Bible's terms. It wasn't wasn't a novel idea for Jesus to do this. This is how it was in the creation. The man was the head of the woman, the leader of the woman in Genesis. Male headship and leadership was there in the beginning of creation, so we should expect it in the new creation, the church. Any questions, comments on that? So next time, we're going to to dive into Paul's letters and some of his prescriptive texts for men and women in their roles in the church. So we're going to be looking at a couple of texts in 1 Corinthians, which is going to be chapter 4 in DeYoung's book. Um, and so thank you all again for listening. Read chapter 4. Read 1 Corinthians, the whole thing if you can, um, this week to be prepared um, for next week. Thank you. You guys are dismissed. <laughs>